When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Gunplot Podcast from RTE's Documentary on One. This is the first of four extra episodes. As you'll know if you've listened to the previous episodes, in the course of his research for a thesis and a book on the arms crisis, the historian Michael Heaney came across audio tapes recorded in court during the second arms trial of October 1970. The tapes cover two afternoons, but we wonder if there are more out there, in a box, in a filing cabinet or an attic, If you come across them, we'd love to hear from you. Please write to documentaries at rte.ie. That's documentaries at rte.ie. In the next four bonus episodes, we're going to play the tapes we have in their entirety with introductions from Michael Heaney. The first tape is from the afternoon of October 16th, 1970. Captain James Kelly is on the stand and he's being cross-examined by counsel for the state the prosecution, Seamus McKenna. This is basically, in the courtroom, war to the knife. This is counsel for the state, Seamus McKenna, going for Captain Kelly by the throat. And this is Captain Kelly, the cavern man, the tough army officer, hunkering down in the witness box, giving him clipped short, brittle answers, dealing with him as he was being received by McKenna. These are two boxers slugging it out and Kelly is giving no quarter. All of this is captured really well by Tom McIntyre in his wonderful book Through the Bridewell Gate. Captain Kelly was fighting for his life here and he was up for it and provided the state with a very tough contest. So you see that in the tone of voice that's being used here. Kelly's voice, as this interrogation proceeds, his voice becomes more and more clipped, sharper. It's all in the voice. You can see him with his fists clenched and he's not giving McKenna one inch. Totally secure in his evidence, as he was, but McKenna is determined to discommode him and it's two prize fighters slugging it out basically on the floor of the uh, Central Criminal Court. The absence of bereavement doesn't require any explanation, Mr. Martin. You're a, you're a competent deputy. Captain Kelly, just for purpose of clarification, about this cargo that was to come in on the city of Dublin, you had arranged the customs clearance of that uh, on the authority of Mr. Hawhey and through Mr. Fagan? Uh, through Mr. Fagan, yeah. yes. And on the authority of Mr. On the, on the authority of Mr. Hawhey, yes. And Mr. Fagan, I think, in due course, on a date subsequent to the 19th, transmitted to you the names of the appropriate officials at the port of Dublin. That's correct. Who would uh, 
see the car go through without any uh, bother. That's correct. And when I'm going forward in time again, at a time when the plan was later changed to bring the arms in by ear, did he again, or did you get from him again, the names of certain customs officers at Dublin Airport? I got the names of certain customs officers which came from Mr. Fagan. Yeah. I am not, I don't recollect the actual uh, message as such, but I got the names anyhow. What I want to establish is for this just to get out of the way, that while you may not remember the names, uh, before the actual weekend or to be taken in by air, you had got the custom clearance again and got appropriate names from Dublin, from Mr. Fagan, our customs officials at Dublin Airport. That's correct. So that uh, at all times you were satisfied that whatever difficulties might arise in relation to the venture, there could be no question of any difficulty about customs clearance. I was quite happy about that. Now, about the time the city of Dublin came in to the port, were you still meeting Mr. Blaney fairly frequently? Yes. And in particular, did you meet him fairly frequently in the period, say, the 24th of March to the 10th of April? Well, I wouldn't say in particular, but I am sure I met him on those occasions just as frequently as I'd always met him. Did you discuss with Mr. Blaney as it came about this incident at the Port of Dublin? The incident at the Port of Dublin? <coughs> yes, I would have described it to him. Had you ever any discussion with Mr. Blaney about his asking the Minister for Defence for his authorization to bring these arms into the country at this time? I am not aware of any specific discussion on those lines. It is possible we talked about authorization and so on, but I am not aware of it as specifically, certainly, as you put it. In what context do you believe it's possible you may have spoken to Mr. Blaney about authorization? At this stage, I had no worries about authorization. Uh, I'm trying to think back to answer your question, but I had got the authorization and uh, there was no problem as far as I was concerned. So if I was talking to Mr. Blaney about it at all, I would have told him that the author <coughs> I had the authorization. You regarded yourself as having got the authorization directly from Mr. Gibbons yourself? Mr. Gibbons was fully informed of the operation, so what I was carrying out was a military operation with the full approval and consent of the Minister for Defence. And authority. And in furtherance of that, I got the customs clearance. I see. Did Mr. Blaney ever tell you that he had sought an authorization from the Minister of Defence for the importation of these arms? This came up in evidence here before in the court, and uh, it surprised me when I heard it. So I don't believe he told me anything specific about seeking an authorization from Mr. Gibbons. Well, whatever about anything specific, Captain Kelly, and I concede, of course, it may be difficult to remember the details of all conversations, it's a position that you have no recollection at all of Mr. Blaney Mr. Blaney's telling you 
that he had asked for Mr. Gibbons' authority and it had been refused. I don't know. And uh, it was something that I would not have been very worried about even if it was mentioned. Because the whole thing to me was completely clear-cut from back in January, February. Now, the whole thing, the minister knew all about it, and I, he was the relevant minister, and that was that. It couldn't have been clear-cut back in January, February, because it, even on your return from the continent on the 19th of February, the plan was still at a very nebulous oh, preliminary a, stage. Apart from the plan being at a nebulous stage, the whole principle involved in the importation was clear to the minister, as far as I was aware, from January, February. From the time of this resignation, this proposed resignation revolved around this plan, and that is why it was brought to the notice of the Minister for Defence. And as far as I'm concerned, the Minister for Defence gave his authority from that date, which I afterwards confirmed myself on the 4th of March. That's in the course of the conversation you've described to us. Well, I have described it already. Is Mr. Gibbons then, on your recollection, clearly wrong when he says the first time anything sort of definite or coherent about the plan was brought to his attention was when you told him about going down to the ship? He is wrong. You went to the continent again between the 1st and the 4th of April. Uh, yes, 1st and 4th. This is your date, you take this, well, this is correct, I... And on this occasion, sorry, yeah, that, that's correct. I'm quite sure of those dates. Uh, on this occasion, you had you had Mr. Uh, Likes with you. Yes, I brought Mr. Likes with me on that occasion. How long before your departure did you ask Mr. Likes to accompany you? I would not say it was very long. It possibly was the night before, or maybe two days. Did he agree readily to your request? Oh, he did, yes. Had you discussed the matter of his going with you before you raised it a night or two days before you actually departed? No, because the question of going on the 4th of April evolved from the abortive attempt of the 25th of March. So therefore, if the 25th of March had come off, there would have been no necessity to go in April. And is the position that Mr. Likes didn't raise any objections and appeared quite ready to accompany you as interpreter? Beg your pardon? He didn't raise any objections. He appeared to be oh. quite ready to accompany you. Oh, no. No. He was quite ready. Quite ready. <coughs> I take it that at this juncture, if not earlier, you made completely clear to him what the... Uh, underlying purpose of your visit was? I have a recollection of talking to him on the plane going across and I think this is when I put him in the picture fully. We had a long discussion on the plane and I more or less told him the background of the whole thing at that stage. Well, while you may have informed him of the all essential details at that juncture, I suggest to you you must have told them 
about the fact that it was arms and ammunition you were dealing with a great deal earlier. And to refresh I your mind, that you probably told them when you came back from your visit to her slighter on the 10th of February, having given the Wellock's address of your own initiative. Something arises here. There was a lot of discussion before lunch here about this. And uh, I could not have met Mr. Likes between certain dates because he was on holidays on the continent. Yes. From, it was the 7th of March up to the 21st or 22nd of March. So therefore, Mr. Likes would not have been put in the picture until then. Yes. Some days shortly before the cargo was due into Dublin or some days shortly after it was supposed to arrive. This is, this is, no, you couldn't, no, no. It was sometime, I would say, after the 25th. Yeah, after the 25th. I'm not sure exactly of what date Mr. Likes returned from the continent from his holidays, but it was the 20-something. So that um, Mr. Likes wouldn't have even known, if you're correcting your dates, that this cargo of arms and ammunition was arriving addressed to his firm on the 25th of March. Whatever date he came back, at the first opportunity, I told him. Now, <clears throat> going over in the plane, you say you filled him in about the details and told him it was a <coughs> plan to bring in arms and ammunition. On the plane, I certainly gave him fairly full details. Where did you go to on this trip, uh, Captain Kelly? We went to Antwerp. Yes. And from Antwerp to Hamburg. Yes. <coughs> Was the purpose of your visit to Antwerp to inquire why the goods had been short-shipped? To try and find out something about it. Well, did you find out? We found out nothing in Antwerp. So therefore, we went to Hamburg to see her Sluter. Did you see him there? We met her Sluter, yes. And did you ascertain that the reason for the non-arrival of the goods was difficulties in customs clearance? Difficulties in customs clearance at the Belgian end. The Belgian end. Did that, at the time, alert you to the fact that there were in continental, some continental countries customs restrictions on the export of arms? Well, they suggested that, certainly. Well, I mean, did your mind advert to that fact? Oh, of I course my mind would advert to that fact. Was it while in Hamburg and at the time of your meeting with her, Slaughter, you got the phone call from your wife. It was prior to my meeting with her, Slaughter, that I got the phone call from my wife. We, yes, it was the 2nd of April. And you were told by her, is it correct, that you were to come home as quickly as possible? She told me that Colonel Heffern had given her a message for I to come home as quickly as possible. Yeah. At that stage, I asked her, did she know anything about it? Ken, I don't think we're entitled into this conversation. Oh, I, I want this in for one very specific reason. Did your wife tell you that she knew what you were needed for it concerned the distribution of arms, or the possible distribution of arms. She suggested this to me, not in so many words. She conveyed it 
to me and she explained how she knew because a northern delegation had come down on that day and had made an attempt to contact me and it was they who told her. There was no suggestion that <coughs> Colonel Heflin told her. I am quite certain that Colonel Heflin did not tell her from my conversation, my wife on that occasion. You of course told us in your direct evidence yesterday that my wife knew your actual words or my wife knew what it was about. Well this is the same thing. Did those words yesterday in your evidence cause you any concern overnight? Not one iota of concern. And I said it with due deliberation yesterday. And up to the time I raised the matter now, you're, you hadn't even adverted to the fact that you had used these words. I had not adverted to the fact now. I don't understand, uh, Mr. McKenna, what you are getting at. When you asked the question of me yesterday, I answered it with full knowledge and as I said with due deliberation and I knew at that stage exactly the complete background to it yes. having discussed the matter previously quite a long time ago when I came back as a matter of fact from the continent with my wife and having found out exactly what happened I see well perhaps not most well, certain now you came back again. Before you came back, did you ascertain from her Schleuter that the arms were, so to speak, ripe for shipment? Perhaps, 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 in the interest of truth, one should carry on and uh, explain a second phone call I had on that night relating to this phone call of which you speak. Yes. When I was speaking to my wife, I said, was she certain that I should go home? And she said, <coughs> Colonel Heffern had given the specific order. I said, maybe I should check it out with someone. And Mr. Gibbons was mentioned. And my wife said to me that as far as she knew, he was not around, but that she knew that Mr. Blaney was available and that I could ring him yes. and I rang him and it evolved when I rang him that the heat had gone out of the conversation the situation or sorry situation sorry the heat had gone out of the situation and uh, I said to him then was it necessary that I rush home as ordered by Colonel Heffron yes. he said he did not think so that there would not be necessity to distribute these arms. It did not seem likely at that particular stage. So then I suggested that possibly I should stay on and finish the work I was at. And the general tenure of the conversation was that it had become more important in view of the move <coughs> of what were traceable arms up to Dundalk for distribution to people in Northern Ireland. 
Well, it was seen so therefore, it was against this background that I went to he- see her Sluter. Well, it was seen, Captain Kelly, that two things follow from that answer. One is that you accepted Mr. Blaney's advice, whom you told us was a minister with no control over you, as countermanding a direct order from your superior officer. Isn't that so? Uh, once again, I think this question is uh, leading, I will answer it in this way. I told him to try and contact my superior officer and put him in the picture as to why I was not returning immediately. And as far as I know... No, not exactly. Well, I don't want to waste on due time. And do you want to add to the explanation you've given about asking Mr. Bates? Well, the point, the point is this. I knew why I was being ordered home. And when, two hours afterwards, or thereabouts, I found out that the situation had changed, the necessity or the urgency for my return did not arise. So therefore, I was to continue with my, it was more sensible to continue with my job. It follows also clearly from this issue of your telephone call to Mr. Blaney that whatever terms you had used it, you had put Mr. Mr. Blaney fully in the picture that you were on the continent to get guns. On the occasion of my telephone call, Put it this way, Captain Kelly. Whatever terms you may have used or whatever doubt there may have been beforehand, you made known, or it was known to Mr. Blaney on the occasion of this telephone call you made from the continent, that you were on the continent getting untraceable guns. I think I told the court previously that I had several discussions with Mr. Blaney and that I had conveyed to him how the situation was developing. So Mr. Blaney would certainly know. Did you keep Mr. Blaney all through as fully informed as you kept your minister? I kept my minister informed to any extent that the minister required, and I was always available whenever the minister required me. And on any occasion when I sought out the minister to convey to him information which I thought he should have, the minister had no hesitation in meeting me and in seeing me, and we had quite long and detailed discussions and the minister was fully informed. And enthusiastic indeed. I told you this before, yes. that he was enthusiastic about the plan. Encouraging you to complete this plan as quickly as possible. <coughs> he gave every encouragement. There was no doubt from these long and detailed conversations you had with him, there could be no doubt, but that you kept him advised step by step of the progress of the plan, and that he was encouraging you to bring it to a successful conclusion as soon as possible. Well, I think I have already made myself clear well, on what I, I said to the minister. I want to summarise your situation. That, is, that was your situation. The minister was briefed by me on this plan whenever it was necessary, whenever the minister required. I told him in my conversations with him what I knew, and at any stage he asked me questions, I answered those questions and I made every endeavour to explain to him fully. But not only did you tell him what you knew, Captain Kelly, 
on your evidence you told them fully what you were doing? Of course I told them what I was doing. And? Colonel Hepburn told them what I was doing. Oh, don't mind Colonel Hepburn, deal with you for the moment. But he is my superior officer. And it's a fair oh, summary of your position to say that not only did Mr. Gibbons know what you were doing, but he approved and was enthusiastic about it and authorised your doing it. Is that right? Well, whatever about the use of words, and you seem to be concentrating on this enthusiasm part very much. As far as I am concerned, and we will just be very logical about this, I briefed and fully informed the minister. The minister knew and approved. And authorised you in your course of action? Of course. To such an extent that you feel or felt justified this morning in naming him, perhaps so we didn't come in until a later time, as the originator and instigator of this plan. Is that right? Uh, we went through this this morning already and we had a discussion about what was an originator and instigator. And I explained to you in detail how it was brought to the minister's notice. Yeah. And it was brought to the minister's notice in January and in Feb February as a proposition. And the minister, well, the point is this, you're asking me who's the originator. The minister fully accepted this. And because he is the duly authorised person, I would then say he was the originator. And so far as you were concerned, being a servant officer in military intelligence, he was the man in control. He was the Minister for Defence. He was the man in control of the plan which you with others were executing. Is that right? Of course. Well, there's no doubt about that. Do I detect perhaps wrongly a no, slight but note I, of hesitation? I can't understand why you were asking this question. I told the man was the Minister for Defence. I was a serving that. army officer and I think it's quite well known to everyone that a serving army officer is under the control of the Minister for Defence. And as a serving army officer under the control of the Minister of Defence, you were under his control in your execution of this plan. Is that right? Yes, because I kept him fully informed. You want, I want to see, you mentioned that around this time, this is sometime after the abortive effort, there was a tentative plan to bring them in by Erlingus. Well, there was a change in plans from bringing them in by boat to bringing them in by air. When did that take place? This plan originated after my, what I considered, very pertinent conversations on the 2nd of April with the people back here. Yes. That it had become necessary and more urgent that yes. these arms should be brought in because if another Ballymurphy incident were to arise, it would be much better to have the correct arms instead of the traceable arms that were in effect sent to Dundalk on that date. So having got this information, it became more urgent that we should get the arms in here as fast as possible. This was the frame of mind in which I went to visit Herr Sluter in Hamburg. So when we arrived up there, we made arrangements for he to fly in the goods. So the abandonment, the abandonment of the plan to bring them in by sea and the change which involved bringing them in by air was a step taken entirely on your own initiative. 
because of the circumstances as they appeared to you to have changed. Is that right? I had found out what the situation was back in Dublin, and I used my discretion, certainly. Well, would you please answer yes, if you can answer the question shortly. This was a change brought about entirely at your own initiative. On my own initiative, but not out of the blue. When there was a background to it which I have explained. When you came back, did you report to Colonel Heffern at any stage that you had changed your plan and these were to be brought in by air? I came back on the 4th of April. I reported to Colonel Heffern. Did you report to him that the plan had been changed, that you had changed it of your own initiative, and that the arms were now to come in by air? I did. That report, I take it, was verbal? Was verbal, yes. You came back on the 4th of April? I arrived on the 4th of April, yes. This was an important change in plan? Well, it was important to the extent that there was a different means of transportation. Oh, no. For a top-secret government mission involving the expenditure of possibly up to £30,000, did you at the time not regard it as an important change in plan that the arms would now come in by air rather than by sea? It was important in that the arms would come in faster. How soon after you returned from the continent on the 4th of April <coughs> did you tell Colonel Heffern that the arms were coming in not by sea but by air? The 4th of April, what day was it? I would like to know. It was probably. Saturday. Saturday the 4th of April. Well, it's possible I did not report to him until Monday then. Monday. But there is no doubt if your evidence be correct. But it is also possible that I did report to him on the Sunday. But whatever it was, it was reasonably soon after you came back. Oh, there's no question about this. And you made it absolutely clear to him that the plan had been changed to the extent that they were now to come in by air and as quickly as possible. That is true, yes. You saw Mr. Gibbons on your own evidence on at least one or possibly a few more occasions after your return on the 4th and before you went out again on the 17th. I saw him on at least one, on certainly. At least one. Because on your own evidence you say that the Ballymurphy riots were discussed. That's correct. Did you tell Mr. Gibbons that you of your own initiative had changed the plan and they were now coming in by air. Yesterday, in my direct evidence, uh, I Captain, said... Captain, yes. please, answer the question and then explain if necessary. I cannot remember specifically stating this, but I would be very surprised, extremely surprised, if I did not, in a in fact, I would go as far as saying I did. When you say, in effect, I would go as far as saying I did, does that mean that you have no recollection whatever of telling him that, but you're drawing it as a logical conclusion from what the proper steps would be? The point is this, that I, whenever I reported to Mr. Gibbons, had no reason 
They're going to see come him we're going anything. To have, we're going to have long questions and long answers unless the question put is answered. Repeat the question, please, Mr. McGinnis. When you say... God, don't know what this previous answer was now, my lord. Was he drawing uh, the conclusion that yeah, this would uh, be... Are you drawing a conclusion that this is something you did tell him because it would have been proper to tell him, rather than actually recollecting that you told him? I cannot say that I have a specific recollection of telling him, but I am quite sure that I did. May I put it to you this way, Captain Kelly? Never mind a specific recollection. I put it to you as you sit there in that box. You haven't the slightest recollection of telling Mr. Gibbons about this change in plan. That doesn't mean I did not tell him. To just answer the suggestion I'm putting to you. As you sit there, you cannot recollect in the slightest that you told this to Mr. Gibbons. Well, I think this is what I have indicated, and I have not attempted to indicate otherwise. But... And I think it is very logical and fair to claim that I reported everything to Mr. Gibbons we, in we, we great know. detail. We know you and said. that if I did not tell him that, it would be amazing. Well, certainly as a man responsible for the plan, it would appear appropriate, would it not, to tell him of this important change? It would. A change of a method of transportation to speed up the operation. Certainly you would agree with me that in discharging properly your army duties and in reporting fully to your superiors, it's something you should have told them if in fact you didn't. I have indicated to you, Mr. I know McKenna, I'm asking you about the discharge of a normal or an official army duty. Would you agree with me this is something you should have told them if perhaps in fact you didn't? Something I did tell them. Well, you're positive now you didn't tell him. I've not been positive about it in, to the extent that I have a clear recollection of saying, Mr. Gibbons, this is coming in by plane. But I, in my reports, would not miss this out. I would certainly tell him. Captain, would it be proper and normal? Army? I don't think you need to press the matter further, Mr. got your answer. Now, the switch of plan to bring the arms in by air involved certain changes at this end, one of which was your contacting Mr. Fagan and making arrangements with the customs clearance at the airport. Yeah, well, these arrangements. And you got right. that? Yeah. You were not out of the country between the 4th of April and the 17th, the morning you went out to Frankfurt. That's correct. You've ha you had been excused regimental duty by the new Director of Intelligence, the day he took office on the 10th of April. Uh, this reminds me of something else. No, no, which just might... let's get the fact. Well, this is a fact, you had been a very excused. pertinent fact. You I'd like to put to you. You, will you please answer my question, and you can go on as long as you like then. Yeah. You had, in fact, been excused regimental duties by the new Director of Intelligence, Colonel Delaney, when he took over on the 10th of April. Isn't that right? On the 10th of April, my wife got a phone call from Captain Dan O'Shea, an intelligence staff officer at excuse Army me, Headquarters. Excuse, excuse me, Captain, excuse you, have, me. you have told us about this before, I think. Yeah. Now, you listen to counsel's question, answer it, and then if you want to make an addition to your answer, please do. Right, my lord. Now, the yes, question again, yes, please. Yes, yes, is the simple question. That's a simple good. answer, rather. Very satisfactory. You said in the course of your direct evidence yesterday, in reference to this call from Captain O'Shea, I was given an order 
confirming what I had been doing and the orders which I had received since I started the operation. Yes. Is just wait for my question. I'm waiting. You said that yesterday. Yes. Did you get a specific order to that effect? Or is that the interpretation you put on your excusing from regimental duty which Captain O'Shea had conveyed to you? I got a specific order to continue with what I was at that time doing. And in addition, I was told that I was excused regimental duties. And I would like to explain fully about that phone call so that no one may be in any doubt whatsoever. My wife answered the phone. Captain O'Shea came on and said he had a message for me. She asked him if he wanted to speak to me. Okay, Mr. McKenna. Well, it's not quite, not quite, Captain, because we can't hear about conversations between a Captain O'Shea and your wife, neither of whom were in court. Tell, if you want to make an explanation about the position, do it without referring to hearsay conversations that you weren't present at. Put it in a nutshell, please. I don't want to... uh, deprive you of an opportunity of giving an explanation, but at the same time, we cannot have hearsay conversations. Well, the point is that Captain O'Shea... as a result of a conversation, something happened. But I think there is an important point arises here, that when my wife said to Captain O'Shea, do you wish to speak to my husband? He said, no, you may deliver the message. Yeah. And he delivered the message as follows that I was excused regimental duty on the 11th of the month, which was the following day, and that I was to continue with my present duties. As far as I can recollect, the words were doing... How can you, recommend, he, how can you recommend what the exact words were? Because my wife... For your wife, too. Well, we can't have that. I'm sorry, Captain, but if we conducted affairs in court on the basis of what one's wife told witnesses... It would be quite improper. But, uh, <coughs> Lord, with all due respects, in the giving of an order in yes. the army, this is one accepted way of doing it. Yes. And this was a very definite order, which affects me very gravely. Yes. And I, I cannot clarify how and why and where this order was given. It puts me at a grave disadvantage in my defence. Well, tell, tell, very good. If, if you think that observing the laws of evidence prejudices you, I'll relieve the position by allowing you to state briefly, in a nutshell, uh, the position as a result of a telephone call, but not to give what was said or what you heard was said. Uh, right, my lord. The, uh, my wife called me and said, I have got a message for you, and she called it out to me. I did not hear her correctly because I was upstairs and she repeated it a second time. The contents of the message being that I was excused the regimental duty and that I was to continue doing my present work. And my remark back to my wife was, Delaney must be briefed so. Yeah, was that your full explanation, That's Captain? It. Well, then yeah. we'll pass from it, Mr. Yeah. McKenna, yeah. and we'll have no more hearsay. Glad, oh, gladly pass That was on the 11th of April. It was on the 10th, the 10th. before the 11th. Sorry, thanks, thank you. Uh, speaking from recollection, I may be wrong, 
but uh, I believe it was the 10th of April, that's the same day as John Kelly first went and contacted uh, Mr. Desmond in Dublin Airport. This is, is quite, right? this is quite possible. Why didn't you make this contact yourself? There's no reason John Kelly went and made it, that's it. I know there may be no reason, but I want to know why you, as the man in military intelligence conducting the official top secret operation, didn't go and contact the man in Dublin airport yourself. As I sent John Kelly to do it. Had you any reason for that? I can't think of any reason. Except that it was convenient. Why was it convenient? Maybe I was going to the supermarket with my wife. As simple as that. Were you? I don't know. Oh, now, on this top-secret government mission, you were carrying out a minister's order? John Kelly was involved please, in this please. from the beginning. You were carrying out an order from your newly appointed director, which you <coughs> regarded as confirming your authority. And you order, you send John Kelly on what could be a very delicate inquiry. Why? Because I know and trust John Kelly, and John Kelly had been working with me as the liaison officer from the Northern Defence Committees, and he was the sensible and correct man to send if I was not going myself. Did it occur to you that should any difficulty arise, it would be very helpful to preserve in the secrecy of the operation if you could identify yourself, or if the person who went could identify themselves as being from military intelligence? It never crossed my mind, and if you're talking about secrecy and so on, I will remind you that John Kelly gave my telephone number to the people out there. Oh, I know that. I'm not, uh, not saying that he tried to keep you out of the picture. Did it not occur to your mind that in case of difficulty out there, especially in relation to customs men, it would be reasonable or better if you, as the intelligence man, went out, because you could identify yourself. John Kelly was quite capable of doing it, as far as I was concerned. I say this without any criticism of Mr. Kelly because it's been said, I think with pride by himself and certainly by his counsel, that Mr. Kelly was a former member of the Irish Republican Army. Isn't that so? Mr. Kelly... Isn't that so? It was said here in court. Didn't you know that at the time? I did, yes. Did it not cross your mind? that if the customs raised any queries, this could cause grave, possibly grave difficulties that would be averted if you went out and on any requisition you could establish you were a member of military intelligence. There would have been no problem if John Kelly had been in any trouble at the airport. All he had to do was ring me and I could have gone out there in half an hour. Did you authorize or instruct John Kelly in any way to say or convey if he was queried that he was an assistant to Mr. Hawhey? No. Because I don't find it necessary to instruct John Kelly what to say. He's capable of handling matters himself. Did you ever instruct Mr. Kelly that apart from saying it if you were asked, that he could, so far as you were concerned, regard himself as an assistant to Mr. Hawhey? No. May we then take it, if it be the fact 
that John Kelly so represented himself, he did so completely without your authorization. As far as I'm aware, and maybe this is hearsay again, I don't well, know. We own. won't have it if it's hearsay, Captain. <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a question that can be answered yes or no, and if the yes or no requires a qualification, please give the qualification. But the question, as I understand it, is uh, whether you... Um, if, in fact, John Kelly so described himself, did he do it in any way with authorization from this man? I beg your pardon again, please. Did you authorize John Kelly to say that he was an assistant to Mr. Hoy? Uh, no. No. Now, I want to... <clears throat> I take it Mr. Kelly reported to you about the contact he'd made with Mr. Desmond that day and also a subsequent co contact with Mr. Desmond and Mr. Ryan. Yes. And this is... Uh, my Lord, uh, and this is where uh, John Kelly also reported to me concerning how this assistant assistant business arose. I don't want to hear that. It was an assumption by other people. You went out with Mr. Likes again on the morning of the 17th. I'll give this straight my mind. Well, you may, I think you would take it that day, that's correct. The Friday morning, the 17th. Yeah, seven, seven, 17th, yes. yes. You were aware, I take it, before you went out that there was no question of getting the entire cargo through Erlingus. These problems had arisen that have been explained here in court by the... And you discussed people. the night before and the I question of the charter with I Mr. Squire. I knew about it. That's right, we went out to Mr. Squire and talked to him. And you knew that provided the load was ready at the other end, and provided you the documentation ready for Mr. Squire, all you had to do was to contact him and he would come and collect the load. And collect the load, yeah. I don't want to then go into the weary details about Frankfurt and Vienna and seeing the arms and ammunition in Kirchner's warehouse. But just as a matter of accuracy, those were the same arms and ammunition that her Schleuther had consigned to Antwerp and hadn't managed to get, to get out from Antwerp. Isn't that so? All I can say at this stage is that I would assume so. Tell me, when you saw them in that warehouse, you opened them and you examined them? I had one of the boxes opened. Were you um, having a sort of a controversial conversation with Herr Schleiter, as Mr. Likes mentions in his statement? When I saw the type of arms that were there, I had some conversation with Herr Schleiter. Why, what type of arms were they? There were, there, were ones. there were pistols. Yes. Sorry, <coughs> Would it be a correct description of it to say that yourself and Mr. Schleifer appear to be in very bad humour? Well, actually, there was an element of this because uh, when I said to Herr Schleifer, you better show me this stuff, he said, do you not believe me or words that affect him? I said, must see it. So I went down to inspect the goods. And then when I saw them, my personal feeling was that they were not the most suitable type of weapon. Did you regard them as being of inferior material? The weapons in themselves were quite good and quite excellent, but the type. Yeah. But overall, were you satisfied or would you have been satisfied to take them as a consignment? Well, they were there. We would have taken them at that stage. I think. I think. So all that remained to be done 
was to get in touch with Mr. Squire and have him come with his cargo aircraft and bring the arms and yourself and Mr. Likes back, as you had arranged with that, that would be it. You rang Mr. Fagan on the Sunday. Yeah, yeah that's all. So, on the Sunday. Can you remember yes. what time on the Sunday it was you rang him? I don't know exactly what time it was. Uh, we will try and agitate your memory now. This no. is a fairly vital stage of the whole operation. Was it before lunch or after lunch? I don't, I don't, I don't know. You just can't remember? I know I rang him. That's it. To his home address in Dublin? It would be his home address. Had you that number in a diary or something before you went out or had you to look it up in a foreign directory when you were in Austria? I had no trouble contacting him, so I expect I had his number in my diary. Yeah. <clears throat> Everything was set to go at this stage. The arms were perhaps not what you wanted, but acceptable. Mr. Squire only had to be notified. Isn't that so? Well, this was the general plan, yes. Did you, in the course of that conversation, use the word boss man? This has been used here in the court, and I will accept that I did. Did you use it in this context? Ask the boss man what his instructions are. I'd say this is correct, yes. By the boss man, you intended to mean Mr. Hyde. This would be correct, yes. And Mr. Fagan undertook to do so. This is right. Were the instructions you referred to instructions giving a final OK to the operation? I just wanted to find out if what were the... I asked him, what are the instructions? You asked him to ask the boss man what the instructions were. <coughs> to now, ask there could the be boss no doubt over this. Wasn't that... You were asking Mr. Fagan to ascertain from Mr. Hawley what the writing orders for you were. Isn't that right? This is correct, yes. In other words, would you take the final step and complete the plan? I was awaiting. Right? I was awaiting instructions, Isn't and I asked for these instructions by telephone on this Sunday, and I rang Mr. Fagan because I had his number. I do not think I would be able to find it out in Vienna, and asked him as an official of government back here in Dublin. What were the instructions? As regards Bossman, it would refer to Mr. Hawhey, I would imagine, but I was not one bit worried whom he went to once he got the instructions. Oh, no. Do you want to go back on what you conceded? I am not going back on anything. I wanted to get instructions from an official source back in Dublin. You meant, I suggest, when you made that telephone call, this and this only, that Mr. Hawhey would be asked for the final okay. Well, this is what I assumed that he would ask Mr. Hawhey. Not ask me to assume anything. I asked you, was that what you meant? Oh, yes, I meant him to go ask Mr. Hawhey. A final okay from Mr. Hawhey? Yes. A final okay. 
I asked for instructions and I said, ask the boss man, which was Mr. Hawhey. He was on the ground here in Dublin. He could ask Mr. Hawhey. They could have a discussion. They could have a discussion with various people. All I wanted to get was from an accredited official of the government an answer back with instructions. Why didn't you ring Colonel Heffron or your successor, not Colonel Delaney, and get that confirmation from Mr. Gibbons? Or alternatively, why didn't you ring Mr. Gibbons himself? Colonel Delaney had never made any attempt to contact me apart from giving me the order to continue on with my present duties. I had never been informed by Colonel Delaney or anyone else that Colonel Delaney had been briefed on what was a top secret operation. Are you saying or suggesting that Mr. Fagan was the only man in, in connection, with connection with authority in Dublin that you could conveniently ring? Mr. Fagan was a senior civil servant here in Dublin. He knew the background to what was going on. A man whom I could trust and whom I did trust and whom I would trust and whom I rang and asked for instructions. Will you tell me please, in as short an answer as possible, why you selected Mr. Hawhey to ask for the instructions rather than the man who on your own evidence was in control of this plan, Mr. Gibbons? As far as I was concerned, this was a government plan and I had no reason to think otherwise. And as far as I was concerned, any member of the cabinet could get the instructions. And Mr. Fagan, as far as I was concerned, could, if he thought necessary, ring Mr. Gibbons. You've told us a number of answers ago that when you referred to the boss man or when you rang Mr. Fagan, you intended that it was Mr. Hawhey he contacted. Do you want to go back on that now? Why is your intention he contact Mr. Hawhey? I have given no indication of going back on that. I said the boss man I referred to was Mr. Hawhey, but Mr. Fagan was quite capable of using his discretion, as also was Mr. Hawhey when he got the message. Now listen. Repeat the question that I asked you, as you've evaded answering. Why did you try to get instructions from Mr. Hawhey rather than the man who, on your own evidence, was in control of the plan? You mean Mr. Gibbons? Can there be any doubt about your own evidence, Captain Kelly? I do mean Mr. Gibbons. That's fine. One of the reasons why I would not ring Mr. Gibbons was because I had not got his number at home, and I knew that he went home at night most nights and was at home most weekends. I was not readily available. Why did you not ask Mr. Fagan to ring Mr. Blaney? I gave Mr. Fagan a very curt message, and I don't think there was any necessity to spell out to Mr. Fagan what I wanted. All this message was was very simple. Get instructions and let me know. And you got them? Hmm? 
What, and I was... In case you should, this perhaps has escaped me. What was the need for instructions? The only man who wanted instructions at this stage was Mr. Squire. Yeah. Well, but, I checked out with Mr. Fagan, and this is the way it happened. I rang him and asked him. The arms were all right. Satisfactory they were reason reasonably satisfactory. You were going to accept them. That wasn't the reason the plan was held up. Isn't that so? Yeah. Mr. Squire was ready to go. Isn't that so? Well, we assumed he was on the night we ah, you'd been made told the arrangement. Two nights on before. the night we made the arrangement. Customs clearance was all right. Yes. For at least a fortnight previously. Yes. Gibbons, Mr. Gibbons had sanctioned it. Oh, he had sanctioned the whole. And you ring Mr. Hoy. Yes. Is the only explanation you have to offer for that that Mr. Hoy was as good a minister as any other for you to ring? Was as good a minister as what? Any other for you to ring? He was a member of the cabinet. <coughs> to come to the next day, you got instructions. It was all off. Yes. And you came back on Tuesday. That's correct. This meeting that took place in Mr. Blaney's office on the 23rd. Yes. You contacted Colonel Hepburn and brought him into that. Yes, I rang Colonel Hepburn. Who asked you to ring Colonel Hepburn and bring him in? I think it was my suggestion, as a matter of fact. Your suggestion to whom? I think I made it to Mr. Blaney. So that before the formal meeting convened, you and Mr. Blaney had met and discussed the situation. Is that right? This meeting was called down there. I was sent for, and I was... I suggested, as far as I remember, bringing Colonel Heffern. I rang Colonel Heffern. And I went down on my own. I met Colonel Heffern down there. We went into Mr. Blaney's office, and some moments afterwards, Mr. Gibbons arrived. Who called the meeting? I expect it might be Mr. Blaney. I imagine, I imagine it was Mr. Blaney when I was in his office. Do you not remember? I, d I didn't call the meeting, certainly. So I assume it was Mr. Blaney. Did you get a message from Mr. Blaney to come to the meeting? Or who did you get the message from? It must have been from Mr. Blaney, I'd imagine. Did you ring up Colonel Heffron on your own initiative? Or did Mr. Blaney tell you to bring him in? As far as I recollect, and as I have already said, I believe I suggested that Colonel Heffron should be brought in on this, and uh, I would say Mr. Blady acquiesced, yeah. or said bring him, towards that effect. And Mr. Gibbons came down after a while, apparently Mr. Mr. Blady rang for him. Well, I would imagine so. Is it correct to say that Mr. Blady did most of the talking at the meeting? Yes. And leaving aside and passing over the question of senior civil servants being questioned by the special branch, did you hear Mr. Blaney say that not very much could come out of it, or that they couldn't prove very much because the guns hadn't actually come into the country? He made some remark to the effect that guns had not actually come into the country. Captain Shelley, I suggest you remember very well that he said it in the context that there couldn't be too much trouble about it from the authorities because the guns hadn't actually come in. This was the general uh, tenure of the meeting, and I would 
Mr. Blaney may have said it, Mr. Gibbons may have said it, it sort of, it was accepted by all present. I want to press you on this, that you remember very well, Captain Kelly, it was Mr. Blaney who made this remark. There was some remark made by Mr. Blaney that as the guns hadn't come in, it made no difference or words to that effect. But uh, sort of this was the general attitude of all the people there type of thing. Was the sense of the meeting as conveyed to you that there couldn't be much trouble because the plan hadn't actually gone through? The sense of the meeting was one of puzzlement as to why investigations were taking place and how this could be explained or uh, how various people could be contacted so that it could be sorted out. This error or mistake that was being made by someone, someone who did not know what was going on. But there was definitely discussion that not very much could come out of it because the guns hadn't come in. There was a reference to that, certainly. What was your reaction to that, uh, Captain Kelly? I had no reaction to it whatsoever. None at all? As far as I was concerned, I was there at that meeting. The meeting was called with two ministers of government, the Minister for Defence, the Minister for Agriculture, the ex-director of intelligence, and myself. And they were having a chat about this mix-up that had arisen concerning these arms. And the meeting was more or less how a solution could be reached. Captain Kelly, you had been indulging in a completely lawful operation not only with the approval, but the instructions of your superiors, as far as you were concerned. Hadn't you? I, uh, not as far as I am concerned, I am quite certain that it was an official and lawful operation. And it was not until this meeting took place that it began to dawn on me that Mr. Gibbons was, all I can say is changing color or backing out, because it was then he made this very significant remark to me when Mr. Blaney was talking to Colonel Heffron, he made it across to me, you are on the hot seat. And this immediately annoyed me very much. And I said something to the effect, what are you talking about or what do you mean? I'm on no hot seat. And this is when he used this term that Colonel Heffron mentioned, brazen bastard. And at that stage, for the first time, it dawned on me that Mr. Gibbons was playing some game. But not Mr. Blaney. Not Mr. Blaney. And not Mr. Hawhey. No, because as far as I was concerned, it was a completely legal order. Uh, it was a completely legal movement of arms, fully authorized by the Minister for Defence, and this was the first indication I got that the Minister for Defence was playing some game of his own. I don't know what it was. I won't, can't explain it. I won't attempt to explain it. Captain Kelly, at this conference, you weren't a junior officer trying to make your case to a superior or a commanding officer. I was. You were there as an equal, weren't you? I was there as a person who was very much involved in carrying out this top secret operation and on those grounds I was there as an equal. Did you make any protest or express any amazement that what you had taken was a lawful army duty for the previous three months was apparently now suspect and a matter of inquiry by the special branch? I was surprised at this wondered about it the same as the others wondered and uh, they were expressing their surprise also as to what actually was taking place to who was misinformed or otherwise and what affected me most grievously at the thing was this attitude of Mr. Gibbons which struck me and 
It sunk home to me. I kept it to myself, and that was it. Did you express your surprise at the meeting? I have very little recollection of the meeting, except what affected me personally and which annoyed me at the time very much was the attitude of Mr. Gibbons, which was one of, as far as I was concerned, uh, changing over from a man who had been responsible for a, an importation of arms, now more or less suggesting that he had no responsibility for it. And this is my main impression of the meeting and it created a very deep impression on me I don't mind telling you and it was the impression I brought away from that meeting and it was the only impression I was concerned with Were you ever concerned about your reports to Mr Gibbons about the impression you left him under? Are you, sure, are you sure they were always as full as you say? Mr Gibbons was fully informed at all times and if he did not agree with the operation, all he had to do was say, stop. And as Minister for Defence, his orders would have been obeyed. He did not say stop through Colonel Heffron, or he did not say stop to me directly. He fully approved. And at all times, he had full knowledge of what was going on. And it was at this meeting on the 23rd of April, that it hit me that he was going to shirk his responsibilities. Am I right that it is a matter of military practice? Every officer who feels he has a grievance may request permission from the senior officer he is with and express it. I was talking to the minister. Look at I passed you from that. He is the I most senior officer that. in the army. You answer my question, please, Captain Kelly. Am I right in thinking as a matter of army practice, an officer who feels he has a grievance may request permission and will in inevitably and invariably be given permission by a superior officer to express his grievance? This was a secret, most unusual and most unorthodox operation. I'm not dealing with this at all. I'm asking you a general question, first of all. Is that invariable army practice that an officer may request permission to express a grievance and is invariably granted? Oh, there is a means and method of doing it. I'm not exactly sure of what it is. I never had occasion to use it. But I know it's there in the regulation somewhere. Do you remember your meeting with Colonel Delaney on the 28th of April? On the 28th of April. I remember it very distinctly. Was the effect of what Colonel Delaney said to you this? You are now getting an order to desist completely and entirely from your present activities. You will make no more contact with anyone whomsoever, either here or abroad, in connection with these activities. You will engage yourself whole time in the pursuit of your legal soldierly duties. Are those the terms which Colonel Delaney addressed you? Those are the terms as far as I remember. This was the only conversation you had had with the new Director of Intelligence, whose order of the 10th of April 
you would interpret it as confirming your instructions to carry on with the execution of the plan. Isn't that right? Phrase that question again, please, Mr. McKenna. These were the only orders that you got from Colonel Delaney, and indeed the only time you met him, from the time he became director, a man whose orders of the 10th of April, as communicated through your wife, you interpreted as being an authorization from him to continue your connection and execution of the plan. Is that so? I refuse to answer that question the way it is phrased. There is no question of interpreting the order. The order I got on the 10th of April was a definite order, correctly delivered in a manner that is accepted in the army, as far as I know, for years. So there was no question of interpretation. The order was given. Did you know very well, Captain, and at the time didn't you know very well, that Colonel Delaney hadn't to have been told the first thing about your activities up to the moment he assumed office? I, in my evidence a few moments ago, told you the remark I made when I heard the order. I said the lady must be briefed. You answered. And that was my assumption. You answer the question now, please, Captain Kelly. Well, this indicates... You know very well that up to the time he assumed the office of director, he didn't know anything about your activities. I know he didn't. You got an order which you concluded said he must have been briefed. Yes. It's the only logical explanation anyone can give so for the you order. In, you in, interpreted or you understood the order conveyed from Combatant O'Shea as being an order for you to carry on with the plan. It now was. Whether it was or whether it wasn't, that was as you understood it. Isn't that right? Oh, there is a point arises here. I have been in the army 21 years and I have got a lot of orders and I have got a lot of them over the telephone and orders over the telephone are as valid as orders given in any other way and this was an order given by a person whom I knew was a staff officer in the director of intelligence office who gave a very specific order to be transmitted to me this order was transmitted to me in conjunction with being excused regimental duties on the 11th which would only confirm that I was to continue as I had at my job as it existed then. Captain Kelly, if in fact Colonel Delaney authorised you to continue with your activities, didn't it, to your mind, make his order to you on the 20th of April even more remarkable? The only explanation for this is the incipient switch of Mr. Gibbons on the 23rd of the month. Don't mind the explanation, Captain Kelly, and please... With great respect, Mr. McKenna asked the witness for an explanation. He did. His question to the witness was, if uh, Colonel Delaney had given an order of a certain type on the 10th of April, wasn't it extraordinarily remarkable for him to give one on the 23rd? And if if anything asks for an explanation or comment on the order of the 23rd, it seems to me that question does <coughs> Whatever may have been your reasoning or your process of deduction, didn't you consider it at the time an extraordinary order from Colonel Delaney, the one of the 20th of April? I did, but I would like to explain a bit further concerning that order. 
course, you may explain. I had met the minister on the previous night, and the minister had explained to me that he had intended transferring me to a unit in Dublin that would not inconvenience me in any way, so that I could have greater freedom of movement to carry out my duties. This top secret work that I was on, and I left the minister on that night very happy to find on the following morning two officers from Army Intelligence on my doorstep who came into my house to where my wife and family were and said, you must come with me, and stood there in my front room until I went up and got into uniform and brought me into an army barracks to Colonel Delaney, one driving in front and the other driving behind under a form of arrest. And I must say I was very surprised in view of what the minister had said on the previous night. And straight away, as soon as I got this order, I made it my business to see the minister again and try and get an explanation from him the following night. And he tried to give the explanation which I have given here in direct evidence. And then, on the third night, when as a result of the explanation he had given me on the second night, conveying to me that this man was a twister, I resigned. He sent for me on the, the next night, the third night, and once again tried to talk me out of it. Went over the same ground again, waffling and woofling about how he would look after me. And I then said, sign my documents. If you regard yourself, Captain Kelly, as been under a form of arrest, which I don't concede at all. It was, well... No, don't mind that. You had all the more reason to have, to have a grievance. I went directly to the minister. You had all the more reason to have a grievance when Colonel Delaney spoke to you. Isn't that so? I knew the minister was behind it don't because I had a conference with the minister the night before. You had every good reason on your own reading of the situation to have a major grievance. Colonel Delaney was subject to the minister, and the minister was the man behind it. Had you a major grievance? Of course I had a major grievance, and I went to, to <coughs> Mr. Gibbons and expressed it to him. <coughs> Did you request permission from Colonel Delaney, good, bad, or indifferent, to explain your situation? Are you serious? you want me to repeat the question? Would you just answer the point is this. I was talking to the minister on the night before Colonel Delaney gave this order. This order resulted from the conversation I had with the minister, from a minister who indicated to me that he was going to get me a job where I would have complete freedom of movement to continue carrying out this operation. Instead of that, he has me put under a form of arrest on the following morning brought in, paraded in front of Colonel Delaney, who produces a sheet of paper and reads what is a very formal and very well thought out order, as was obvious to me at the time. I said nothing, only obeyed the order and reported to the new unit. When I went there, I applied for leave to go home and think out what this was all about. I was not right home in the afternoon until I got a call. I was told my leave was cancelled. At this stage, I got on to the minister's secretary and made an appointment to see him that night to get an explanation for this extraordinary conduct. I got the appointment. I went to see Mr. Gibbons. I have described it in my direct evidence what took place there. Did you at that time regard the good opinion of your senior officer as important to you 
I beg your pardon? Did you regard it important that your senior officers would have a good opinion of you and your work as a matter of ordinary army pride? I would like at all times to do a good job. And I think, with all due respects, Mr. McKenna, I have done one. Did you ask Colonel Delaney for permission to make an explanation to him, whether or not he was carrying out the minister's orders? There was no point, I think it is pretty obvious to anyone, there was no point in asking Colonel Delaney. He had got his orders from the minister, which the minister in effect admitted to me that night when I put it to him. I want to go back, Captain Kelly, very briefly, I, I promise you, to uh, your, many of your visits to Mr. Fagan on some of which you saw Mr. Hawhey. Am I right that on many of these occasions you went in as a result of appointments arranged by Mr. Fagan and actually asked for the money that you wanted allocated to these funds? That I went into Mr. Fagan and asked for... Asked for allocations of money from government funds to be put in trade. When, when northern people wanted money, they came to me and I went and asked Not Mr. Fagan. Not you wanted for yourself, I'm just establishing the fact. Uh, yes, well, I'm explaining. And for various funds in the north, as a matter of fact. Various funds... The system was that every time these people in the north wanted money, you went to Mr. Fagan and told him. Any time they approached yeah. me and said they wanted money, I either rang him, went to see him, or told him. Sometimes Mr. Fagan would take a note of it, and other times he would pass you on to Mr. Hyde. As regards the money, no. He always took that himself. As far as I recollect, he did. You never told Mr. Fagan <coughs> any of this money was for guns The only time, I think when uh, what is described here as the 19th of uh, April meeting, it was indicated to Mr. Fagan what this money was for. And I think Mr. Fagan here in evidence indicated that he was in no doubt. Now, just to clear up one matter, it might be a matter of some confusion. The intelligence unit or section is not a complete branch of the army on its own. It's part of the chief of staff branch. That, that is correct, yes. There are three branches. There's the adjutant generals, the quartermaster generals, the chief of staff. Yeah. So that in the charge of his duties, uh, the director of intelligence yeah. is both attached to and immediately subject to the order of the chief of staff. He would be, yes. Mr. McKenna? Yes, Mr. McKenna. Maybe important to the jury to have this witness's evidence as to the intended storage and destination of this consignment. Oh, yes. After the suggestion of their storage in Cloud Bluebirds, Strendan. Oh, yes. Thank you, my lord. I'm obliged to you. <coughs> I don't want you to tell me where the guns were to be stored. Had to come in, they were to come into your custody, you say. It was a consignment of, well, a ton and a half altogether, wasn't it? I could not tell you the exact way. It was certainly a consignment that couldn't have been handled by John Kelly alone. He was at the receiving end in Dublin Airport, or was intended to be. Yes. Were there other persons intended to be there? And I don't wish you to name any citizens of Northern Ireland. 
we would have got the necessary assistance to move this stuff, whatever stuff arrived. Those people who would assist in moving the stuff when it arrived would be people who would be party to the plan. They'd know what was going on. Uh, they would not be party to the plan until they actually participated. I assume then that some of them would. No. It didn't arrive. The question didn't arise. Did you know, and I don't wish you to name them, any of the others who were intended to meet this consignment apart from John Kelly? I did. Were any of them members of the Irish Republican Army? None of the people I was dealing with were members of the Irish Republican Army as such, and I think I explained it to you very thoroughly yesterday that the people I was dealing with were representative of the minority in Northern Ireland. They came from all walks of life. They were members of various organizations. And if it happened that some of them might have been, it is immaterial, I think. I don't quite understand the last part of the answer. Do you know whether any of them are members of the Irish Republican Army or not? There were not members of the Irish Republican Army as far as I was aware. The arms were then going to be stored in a non-military establishment. I think this has been into fully already, and I don't want to mention not asking where it was. Questions. Were they to be under lock and key? We did not get to the stage of how exactly we would lock them up. They were to be quite safe, I can assure you of that. As far as you are concerned, while the plan for bringing them in was definite, it was quite indefinite as to whether or not you would be the only person who would have, who would have access to them. It was not one bit indefinite. Were you to be the only person who would have access to them? I would have been the person, the only person who would have access to them or who would authorize access to them. So that on your evidence, there could never be any question of the consignment going directly to the north. There was no question of the consignment going directly to the north. The spot was picked here where they would have been kept in safe keeping and conveyed to the relevant authorities. And who, who are the relevant authorities? The Director of Intelligence, who conveyed it to the Minister for Defence. So that if there was If there was any suggestion or plan that these guns and this ammunition would go directly to the north, that was something that was done or envisaged without your authority. As far as I was concerned, I was subject to the military authority of the Director of Intelligence and, and the Minister for Defence. I had report I've emphasized this on numerous occasions. 
I had reported to him at all times. He was in control of the operation. He could give any orders he liked. Would you please answer my question now? That if a suggestion was made or was part of the plan that the guns and ammunition would go directly to the north, that was entirely outside your understanding and your authority? It would be. If such a suggestion was made, I would put it to the minister. If the arms came under your control, you visualised they would remain under your control while you were still a serving army officer? Of course. Who was going to look after them when you were doing your other soldierly duties? I think this is quite obvious from the place where the guns were to be stored, that they were fairly safe and there's no point plugging any further. calling the, more than one witness, more than the defendant, my lord, and accordingly I think we have the right to both open and close this defendant's case. Mr. Maguire will open it. We should do this afternoon? I gather, yes, he's quite content to do so. That was Captain James Kelly being cross-examined by Seamus McKenna for the prosecution. Next, that afternoon, counsel for Charles Hawhey, a barrister named Peter Maguire, stood before the jury and made an opening statement outlining the case for the defence of Mr Hawhey. And that's the subject of our next extra episode of Gunplot. Gunplot.